phase two of a re-emergence plan, and you'll notice more stores are getting the green light to open their brick and mortar locations again. How should retail brands respond and adapt their strategies as restrictions are lifted? Will shoppers who were essentially forced to go digital, whether that was their norm before or not, continue that trend of online shopping, or will brick and mortars come back stronger than ever? Over the next 25 minutes or so, we'll talk about the projected trends and identify what brands need to focus their efforts on to begin rebuilding lost market share. Plus, we'll hear from author and entrepreneur David Lemley, who is the founder, president, and chief strategist at Retail Voodoo. First up, though, I'd like to welcome Leroy Anthony, VP of Business Development here at Claritas. Leroy, thanks for joining me on the Why Behind the Buy. Thanks, Monique. Happy to be here. We're happy to have you. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background into your areas of expertise, since it is your first time on the podcast, how would you describe what you do in your role at Claritas? At Claritas, I lead new business development in the retail vertical. Um, Our recent acquisitions have led to many new solutions uh, aimed at helping our retail, retail partners win, not only by identifying who their best customers are, but where to find more of them, uh, delivering to them and optimizing their marketing spend. Uh, Prior to Claritas, I spent the past 30 years in the the retail and manufacturing industries, many of those years with CPG and and grocery retail uh, with companies such as Kroger, Dunhumby, Catalina, Velasquez, and Pillsbury. So you're definitely an expert, which is perfect for our topic today. (laughs) Um, But before we get into recommendations and strategies that brands and retailers can use to hopefully come back stronger than ever once restrictions are lifted, what are some of the industries as a whole that have been hit the hardest by the effects of the pandemic? Well, Monique, as you know, we work with thousands of clients across many industries. Um, The ones that we are hearing from the most and seem to have been hit the hardest are are restaurants, uh, what I'll combine together as travel, hospitality, and gaming, financial, um, higher education, small businesses, uh, and of course, retail. That means if you're in one of those industries, you'll definitely want to listen close to this episode. But even if you're not, we're going to be going over a lot of tips and approaches you can take regardless of industry. So let's go ahead and talk about a few trends that have come out of the pandemic in the way that consumers are shopping. And I don't think this first one will be much of a surprise, but shopping for groceries online has had a major shift. And Rakuten Intelligence released some data uh, that says that online order volume from full assortment grocery merchants, so think your Kroger's or your Publix rather than like a local convenience store, rose over 210% from March 12th through March 15th, uh, when you compare that to the same time period just last year. So Leroy, do you think that these short-term behaviors that consumers are adopting will actually become permanent? Well, the short answer is yes. Um, I believe that there will certainly be a level of adoption of new shopping behaviors that will continue 
For example, we've witnessed growth in e-commerce and online shopping in recent years, and the pandemic just accelerated that growth. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that there will be consumers that tried online shopping out of necessity and liked it, but there may be others who have had a bad experience. Um, one thing is, you know, for sure, is you, you can't have adoption without trial. Right. And this health crisis has forced many of us into trying new shopping behaviors. But as marketers, we need to keep a close watch on which ones stick and alter our go-to-market strategies to accommodate them. Yeah, so you mentioned that it'll be key for retailers to understand those behaviors of shoppers to determine how to adjust for that potential shift in shopping habits. But I wonder about a bubble burst. We're hearing that unemployment is the highest it's ever been, but at the same time, some retailers are seeing record sales. And I'll again, I'll go ahead and cite some data from Rakuten since they do track electronic receipts. And they say that online sales at general merchandise retailers rose 50% on March 13th, which was near the beginning of when states really started to go into lockdown. So what do you think is going to happen in the third and fourth quarter of the year when holiday sales are, are pushed? Are retailers going to be in jeopardy due to overextended finances of their prospective customers who might be trying to focus on rebuilding their personal wealth from the effects that they're seeing now? Well, I, I believe so. As we get into the back half of the year, it will be very interesting to see how retailers and, and manufacturers approach holiday selling. Uh, I believe it will vary. Um, according to eMarketer, nearly 80% of U.S. adults say that they're likely uh, to spend uh, less and save more once the pandemic ends. Um, mm -hmm. That may, may be what they say, but I think the number will be somewhat lower than that. Um, the same was true during the, and immediately after the financial crisis in 08-09, but spending and borrowing bounced back uh, mm -hmm. then. If you look at what Kroger, you know, just as a company, had done, they were announcing, you know, monthly same-store sale increase uh, back in March of, you know, in the 30% range, and they just announced their quarter was up, I think, 19%. That came out yesterday. So, you know, it, as as we get longer term, things like that are going to start leveling off, and things will, you know, come back to normal uh, a bit. You know, as as some retailers and manufacturers you know, have excess inventory, they may need to, you know, sell through that to enable production facilities to come back online. Mm -hmm. Others may be cash strapped, as you mentioned, and need cash flow. Um, it'll be key for brick and mortar retailers to attract customers back to their locations, though. And I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but this needs to start now, though, because it's going to take some time for many people to feel it's safe to return. Yeah. And your answer makes me think about the issue, the issue of abandoned carts, which I want to come back to that in a second. So I don't want to forget it. But on the flip side to the threat COVID has brought to individual consumers finances and their spend, spending capacity, there's a real issue for retailers similarly. So I've seen a lot of announcements of stores, big and small, forced to shut their doors during the pandemic. And they've made it clear that they will not be able to reopen them or at best case, they're limiting their open opening. So I'm thinking Pier 1, they're going out of business and Bath and Body Works is closing dozens of stores. So after seeing those big names make those kinds of announcements, I did a little research and I came across something JP Morgan Chase put out. And they estimate that the median independent retailer has a cash buffer for just 19 days, which is not really playing it very safe. 
Well, it, it's worth noting that some of the retailers are, that are struggling or closing, like Pier 1 and JCPenney to a degree, were struggling prior to the pandemic. So mm-hmm. that's something to keep in mind and not yeah, necessarily attribute directly to the effects of the pandemic. But that said, and this could change next week, retailers are reopening as soon as they are allowed and are physically able to, given the health guidelines. Um, a second wave would certainly impact this. Uh, Of course, there'll be a certain percent of the population that will be more hesitant to return. So this may be somewhat gradual, but I really don't see a return to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. Retailers need to stay on top of and cater to those behaviors that seem to be more long-term, like you mentioned curbside pickup and online shopping and ordering. Uh, There are companies like Claritas that can help retailers understand who those early returners are and just as importantly, who they are not and how best to reach them. So true. Yeah, contactless delivery, it's currently being touted as a value add, whereas in previous years, socialization was valued in praise. So this didn't come about without some thought put behind it. And there had to be some research done to see, like you said, what would make consumers feel more comfortable getting the items that they want and need right now in the current world that we're living in. So let's step back, though, and talk about something that has always plagued retailers when it comes to their digital strategy, and that's the issue of cart abandonment. We're probably all guilty of going onto a website, browsing around, and filling up that virtual cart with something, uh, sometimes hundreds of dollars of merchandise, then leaving the website without pulling the trigger on a purchase. Leroy, what are your recommendations for how a retailer can combat this issue? Well, I mean, cart abandonment has always been a key focus in the e-com world. Uh, For years, retailers and manufacturers have been using things like email, for example, to try to close the transaction with discounts and perhaps free shipping, uh, things of that nature. Um, But now more than ever, retailers need to be smarter about how they approach abandoned carts. They need to partner with somebody that has a strong identity graph and can identify not only the email address, but street address, digital address for social and display advertising, et cetera. Um, instead of sending you know, a 10% off if you complete the transaction email, maybe they could take this opportunity to really engage this potential consumer through a multi-channel campaign. And when you think about it, they got all the way to the money page and stopped. The question is why? And it's not always about a 10% discount. Yeah, that's a great point, especially about the ID graph. And we've done several episodes of the podcast where we talk about the purpose they serve and how to evaluate data partners who offer this kind of intelligence. But they really just are such a great piece of smart technology to produce what we around here kind of refer to as the highest definition portrait of a customer or prospect. So we've talked about the challenges from both a consumer perspective and a retail brand perspective and what marketers will need to do to overcome as restrictions start to lift. But we'll go ahead and take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we'll hear from our guest, David Lemley of Retail Voodoo. With so many people working from home for the foreseeable future, health and wellness is becoming a real focus. At this point, I don't think it would be too much of a stretch to say everyone on your social media timeline has made a banana bread and started a new workout plan. 
Nutrisystem, known for their weight loss programs, uncovered anonymous visitors to their website by leveraging the intelligence of the Claritas Identity Graph. They were able to see a 42% reduction in the cost of acquisition, 17% below their goal, by targeting three different audience segments based on certain attributes with email campaign. Head over to Claritas.com and click on the Insights tab to access the case study and more today. We're back, and I'm so excited to introduce David Lemley, founder, president, and chief strategist at Retail Voodoo. He helps build brands that consumers want to engage with, and over the years has helped some well-known brands like Starbucks, The Home Depot, Pampers, and Nike, just to name a few, become who they are today. Plus, David recently published a book called Beloved and Dominant Brands, the brand ecosystem that drives better for you brands from one of many to category prominence. David, welcome to the Why Behind the Buy. Monique, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. We are excited to have you. But before I get into some of the questions that I have for you, I'd love if you could start us off with just a little bit more about your background and what Retail Voodoo does on a day-to-day basis. Sure. My background is I came into the typical agency world through the way most people come in. I had a craft and wanted to make really amazing artwork and came into the world and very quickly realized that that was um, less than 25% of the equation of what made something actually sticky for humans. And so I um, continued to get an education while working in my agency and was lucky enough to stumble into several people who were going to make brands that would become the brands that we recognize today. And I got to be in the room when it happened. And I took that and furthered my education and built a process model based upon what we had done. And so I used my, and we named that model in the 90s, Retail Voodoo. My agency used to be named after me. And so you can kind of infer what happened is we repositioned and decided to put me in the background and put the process in the foreground. And here we are. Very cool. Let me ask you, since you are well-versed in all things brands, how has the way that Retail Voodoo works with brands changed in the last, let's say, three months uh, since COVID really started to be more of a concern here in the U.S.? Are brands coming to you for different reasons than they were before? What I would say is that, yes, the the reasons are different and the conversations are actually a lot more vulnerable than they have been in the past. Like we're getting to the real, real quicker. The, the main reason that people are coming to us is really um, either because they are winning and want to widen the gap and they don't know if they were strategic or if it's just an opportunity because they had the right operational system in place, but they recognize that what they've had for the last two years is not necessarily going to help them win over the next two years. The opposite of that is that uh, people come to us because their market has disappeared overnight and they want to make sure that they have a business and that they are relevant moving forward. We're hearing actually as many of those conversations as the, uh, I'd say that's equal. And then another one that has really emerged, which is the one that excites me the most, is that there are companies who've done well or investment groups who've done well who have acquired brands or ideas or technologies during the last three months because of the circumstances, and they want to set something up new and press the gas. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that there are some positives in there, since it seems like a lot of what we're hearing from the media or industry publications are some of the negative aspects of the pandemic. Yeah. Where do you see the needs of brands changing in the future? Well, I I think that in the future, they really need to have a meaningful story and they need to understand who they're connecting to and they need to understand those changing preferences and those changing need states. They need to meet the people as humans wherever they are with whatever's going on and not, quote, market to them. They need to just have a dialogue with them. And I think that um, particularly making sure that you all of your messaging doesn't sound the same as everyone else's while things are shifting. Yeah, I'm wondering about brands that have weak e-commerce strategies, because as you know, everything's kind of shifted to digital. And my brain immediately starts to think about like restaurants who rely on bodies in seats rather than website visits, or even CPG brands who rely on consumers walking down aisles of a store. Where would they start or how can they start so they're not running the risk of not being able to reopen their doors once some of these restrictions have lifted? Yeah, I think that for as a caveat, I think if a restaurant has completely shut down and has not had anything happening over the last few months, the ramp is going to be very steep. But for for so many restaurants where they got into closing their their hospitality section and becoming a delivery kitchen, those are the ones that I think are going to have the, the fastest uh, return to sort of a full board business. And I think it's because they've had to get scrappy. They've had to get smart. They've had to figure out how to play their marketing and their social strategy within the context of making sure that it goes to the app that is not theirs. So it's a third-party communication system. And so I think that that whenever you have to do that, it just makes you sharper and smarter and makes you question your messaging to make sure that it's communicating to the person that's going to receive it on the other side. Right. And would you say CPG needs to follow a similar approach of pivoting their strategy to fit the needs of consumers today? Well, I think it's very similar, but I think that what I've seen is, I mean, there's so many opinions and news articles and so much going on, you know, consumers are trading down. There's, there's um, this, or premium is at an all-time high, or this particular uh, e-commerce platform is exploding. And I think that all of that is um, a little bit hyperbolic, and I also think it's temporary. I, I think that CPG brands that have um, understand who their audience is, and they stay attuned to those changing preferences, and they use data in order to tweak their messaging if necessary, or to speak human to them, I think those are the brands that will do better. Yep. It's a little bit of survival of the fittest though, and who can adapt the quickest will be the ones to come out on the other side of this. What what are the threats to brands with strong e-commerce strategies? I'm thinking direct-to-consumer brands in this case, who have almost always been digitally focused. Considering now that competition is increasing in the online space, what are the threats that they need to be on the lookout for? Well, I think the, the biggest threat actually is um, overconfidence. I think if, if they've had success, it's kind of one of the th- things that I started with, which is just because what you've done for the last two or three months has been amazing doesn't mean it's going to work in the future because everyone can see what you're doing now. And so I think that the risk comes down to people can now really tap into that Amazon, Walmart.com, and Target.com 
um, algorithm and figure out how to out uh, cost per click you. They can figure out how to out keyword you. And that is how the brands that have done well have become a thing. So I think their th the threat is really that their cost is likely to be three to five X in the next year in order to, to continue to do what they've done. That actually makes me think of a similar topic where overconfidence may backfire, but I want to hear your perspective. The demand of certain products like paper goods has forced consumers to basically diversify their shopping carts. So whereas I might have been loyally buying bounty paper towels, now I can't find them and I have to switch to a different brand. How real do you think the threat of losing brand loyalty will be post-COVID? Well, I think it's depending upon the brand, so case specific and region specific. I think the the threat is smaller than people think, and the reason is um, I think Bounty has a captive audience, and they may be able to find um, a similar product. But when opportunity and availability comes back, the 20 years of relationship are not going to be disrupted. I think conversely, smaller brands who maybe had distribution problems that Bounty or uh, a mass CPG brand has on shelf, those smaller brands, even to the ones like seventh generation who've had potential supply chain or distribution delays, those are the ones that have a bigger risk of losing to uh, what I will call a conventional brand. That definitely makes sense. I'm a brand loyalist who has had to switch due to my brand not being available a month ago, but I 100% went back as soon as I found the shelves restocked with the brand I like. All right, David, our listeners love to hear a top tip segment. So what do you think will be the top three things that a brand will have to consider when the threat of the pandemic has lessened if they want to regain lost market share? Well, I think first and foremost, they have to do a reality check and determine how, if, and when their consumers changed. And are those changes conditional or were they um, basically opportunistic or because of the environment that we were in? So it's really thinking about consumer preference changes in terms of sustained behavior and what actual changes occurred. And then based on that, I think really it's thinking about your go-to-market strategy. Do you need to revisit it? If you had a really great successful e-com platform that now is costing you five times as much to run, what do you need to do? What information can you get your hands on to be smarter? Or is there a way to um, rehack the algorithm? And then um, the other thing that I would really caution is, and this is something that we actually are seeing a lot, survival techniques. A lot of brands are using survival techniques during this, uh, during the pandemic. And I think that people need to be really mindful of survival techniques having a long-term erosion to their brand relevance. That's a good point. Be careful making long-term decisions based on temporary behaviors. All right. This interview has flown by and we're already at our last question. It's a two-parter though. Uh, from a general perspective, where do you see brands getting it quote unquote right versus getting it wrong with their overall marketing strategy? And what kind of data do you deem as critical for success? Well, when I see them getting it right, they are thinking big picture. They're, they are, they have not just a, a survival mentality, but a long-term relevance mentality. 
that is what getting it right looks like. And, you know, we could evidence that by hundreds of examples, but I think people understand that fundamentally. If you think about what your brand's going to be and what your legacy is going to be, you behave differently than if you're strategic and opportunistic and willing to sell the goose that made the eggs for you. So I think there's that. And then the second part of your question around around what kind of data do I think is critical for, for their success, I think I think now is a really good time to start prepping for. I wouldn't actually push the button on this, but I would start prepping for um, revisiting what you understand from your UNA study and your segmentation studies and see what changed. If, if there's an opportunity actually to increase your audience to be through that. I couldn't agree with you more on segmentation being critical to success. That's our bread and butter around here. So I'll give my stamp of approval on that one. Great. David, this has been great. I want to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise and your perspective with our audience. It's a challenging time, but I think the tips that you've shared throughout this episode will help put brands on the right path forward to come out of the pandemic successful. If those listening at home want to keep up with you or if they want to keep up with Retail Voodoo, where can they go to learn more? Please give us your shameless plug. Great. Well, the website is retailvoodoo.com. You can check it out there. Uh, I have a bio section. If you're interested in my book, it's you can actually download a chapter for free at that website. And the, another thing I think is really interesting is we have an insights that we publish bi-weekly and people can sign up for that as well. All right, Leroy, it's back to just you and I now, and we're getting close to the time we have left today, but I do want to ask you just a few more questions. So what would you say is the top thing that retailers can do for their brick and mortar locations as they start to reopen to help them with their strategy? There's so much unknown. So what's something concrete they can do to help them see positive results with their marketing efforts? Well, it, it's a good point. And, you know, it's it's not enough to just say we're open. Um, there are ways retailers can use data to better understand who is more likely to be an early returner. In the past year, things like geofencing have become more popular and less costly. That is mm -hmm. using technology to identify someone who may be visiting your competitor and then inviting them to visit you or maybe entering your location and you just didn't know it. Um, they should also be mining their CRM on an ongoing basis, looking for those pre-COVID customers who may not have come back yet and put together a communication strategy to invite them back in. And what about for their digital strategy? What's a top tip for retailers there? Well, I think many retailers found out the hard way over the past few months that they need to be a bigger part of the e-commerce evolution. Those that have fared the best are those who have had a strong internet presence before all of this hit. I, I think we'll see more retailers shifting some of their focus to e-commerce in the near future. For example, it's one thing to send a digital display ad to anonymous visitor to your website, but it's much more effective to understand who that person is, what they look like, where they live, how they behave, how they consume media, etc. And there are companies out there that can do this for them, Claritas being one. Great answer. 
last question for you, and it is a sensitive topic. So within the last month, there's been a renewed sense of attention on diversity. And part of that overall conversation has focused on a lack of representation, in particular, a lack of representation of black consumers across brands, leading many companies to come out with uh, vocal commitments to change. So how would you recommend companies approach this from an authentic standpoint instead of as a reaction to public outcry? Well, you know, this has always been an area where some companies and brands get it right and some get it wrong. And I would caution against any diversity messaging or focus to be driven by marketing. This needs to be genuine and it needs to be a part of company culture because consumers are way too smart for that. Thanks, Leroy. It's it's worth quickly noting that the February episode of our podcast covered this last topic from the perspective of a Black entrepreneur in the beauty industry. So I encourage you guys at home listening if you want a little more insight and direction, um, listen to that episode. So Leroy, thank you again for joining me on the Why Behind the Buy. Thank you, Monique. Appreciate it. I also want to thank my guest, David Lemley, for joining us and for those of you listening to us at home and on the go. As always, if you haven't already, we would love for you to subscribe to the Why Behind the Buy so you never miss an episode. Rate us five stars, share with a friend, and leave us a positive comment. If you enjoyed what you heard today and you want to learn more, or if you need help with your reemergence strategy, visit our website at www.claritas.com. And with that, we'll see you next month for a brand new episode. Bye now. Thank you.